Today on the Matt Wall Show, Target gets a head start on Pride Month by announcing that they'll now be selling chest binders for girls. What are chest binders and how far have we slid down the slippery slope that now they're on sale at a major big, big box retailer? We'll discuss that. Also, the pro-abortion pitchfork mob makes its way to Justice Alito's house in Virginia in spite of the fact that protesting outside of his home violates both federal law and Virginia state law. Plus, a protester gives the most honest and also darkest and most depressing argument for abortion that we've heard yet. And speaking of depressing, they're now doing interpretive dances in the European Parliament. In our daily cancellation, a lawyer goes viral and is celebrated for not brushing her teeth in the morning. What's that all about? We'll talk about it today and so much more on The Matt Walsh Show. When interest rates rise, credit card debt gets more expensive. You need to make sure you're doing what you can to pay it off faster, especially during these times. You can learn more in as little as 10 minutes when you call American Financing, America's home for home loans, where the process starts with a free mortgage review. There's no pressure, there's no obligation, and no upfront or hidden fees. Just a simple conversation around the benefits of a cash-out refinance. You can learn about custom options that can help you secure a lower rate spend less on interest, and pay your balance off faster. It could mean saving up to $1,000 a month, even more in the long term. And uh, these days, we're all look, always looking for opportunities to save. And here's one big one that you may not have thought about. So why not learn more? If you like what you hear, you could skip two payments and may close in as fast as 10 days. That's how fast it is. That's how quick it is, how easy it is. All you got to do is this. Call American Financing at 866-569-4711. That's 866-569-4711. Again, 866-569-4711. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. NMLS 182-334. NMLSConsumerAccess.org. We must gird ourselves for what is about to commence in a few weeks' time. Uh, June is sure to be the most relentless, tedious, over-the-top Pride Month that we've been subjected to since the LGBT club decided that one day was not enough time to celebrate itself and decided to expand to an entire month. You know, there was a time when uh, these kinds of events may have gone unnoticed to the average person, but we live now in a branded world where the brands have branded themselves onto every aspect of our lives, and the brands now compete with one another to see who can fawn over the LGBT club the most, constantly trying to upstage each other with one pathetic, ingratiating display after another. And because we cannot escape the brands, we cannot escape the tornado of ass-kissing. We can expect or Tornado this year, to, to achieve a full Category 5 rating. Truly, we're going to see some Cat 5 ass-kissing as the brands ramp up the LGBT propaganda in response to the anti-groomer laws in Florida and the anti-child mutilation laws in other states. Um, so this is going to be a lot of overcompensation that happens. There's no telling how far it will go. Is Kellogg's going to turn Toucan Sam into a drag queen? Will Mr. Clean come out as Miss Clean? Will some cookware company do an ill-conceived pansexual tie-in? Will the CEO of Disney sacrifice a live goat in front of a golden statue of Harvey Milk? Whatever happens, we know we're going to see some virtue signaling that defies the imagination. In fact, we already are. The website Bustle uh, reports, quite approvingly, I should add, that in the lead-up to Pride Month, Target has announced, quote, fashion collabs with two queer-owned brands. And the article explains, Target's latest collaborations hit the mark. The Superstore, um, known for their quick-to-sell fashion collabs, has released two new collaborations ahead of Pride Month, launching accessible, gender-affirming products for everybody and every, for everybody and everybody. There you go. What makes these collaborations different from every other rainbow-splattered product at your local dollar store? Well, Target partnered with Tomboy X and Humankind, two queer-owned, female-founded brands, to create these much-needed lines. 
The Tomboy X collab features undergarments like compression tops, a comfortable alternative to chest binders, as well as packing underwear, bras, and boy shorts in size small through 4X. Humankind's line, on the other hand, includes various swimsuit styles, such as swim trunks, tops, and unisuits. Um, As binders and gender-affirming swimsuits are notoriously difficult to find, particularly in extended sizes, this accessible drop will make shopping for everyday garments much easier. Now, um, packing underwear, as the term may suggest, is underwear that gender dysphoric girls wear to make it look like they have a penis. Uh, It's perverse and bizarre enough for a major big box box retailer to stock something like that on their shelves. But the compression tops, which aren't so much alternatives to chest binders, but rather just a less grotesque name for chest binders, are uh, even worse. A chest binder, again, as the term suggests, is something that a girl with mental health issues wears around her chest to bind, constrict, and flatten her breasts in an attempt to appear more masculine. Now, Target's website confirms that these items are indeed for sale, describing the Pride Tomboy X compression top this way. They say, the Pride compression top from Tomboy X is designed to keep you comfortable while letting you be your best self. This black hue top has a plain silhouette and pullover style that stays put throughout your day, plus soft, stretchy fabric and no cups for a smooth look and feel. With its athletic look, this compression top is great for both everyday wear and more active days. Yes, be your best self, the best version of yourself, by attempting to hide some of your defining physical features by constricting them dangerously and painfully with an, with an elastic band. I mean, that, that's how you be your best self. That's how you show pride, apparently. The most terrifying thing here is that the product is not available to buy right now online, which appears to mean that it's sold out certainly does not mean that Target decided against putting it for sale. In fact, these can be found in the physical stores. As this tweet from an elated trans activist shows, someone who identifies themselves as Mix MX Kelsey Danger says, holy crap, Target is selling binders. You can buy binders in an effing store now. That's incredible. Like every store does pride merch, but that's actually making a difference for queer youth. I love it. I bet you do. You love the idea of women destroying their bodies. Now, sane, morally decent people, on the other hand, look at this about the same as we would look at Walgreens selling laxatives marketed specifically to anorexic people. A few years ago, there was a a woman who uh, self-identified as disabled. She was a member of the trans-abled community, which is a thing. And she blinded herself with a drain cleaner in order to fulfill her dream of being blind. In fact, uh, if I can actually clarify that, she went, I believe, if I remember correctly, she went to her psychiatrist, and her psychiatrist uh, prescribed this to her, recommended it, and actually helped her blind herself with a with drain cleaner. Now, perhaps if the trans-abled community grows a, a little bit larger, they'll start selling Drano specifically for that purpose. Wouldn't that just be wonderful and inclusive? Here, buy this Drano. You can unclog your drains and um, also blind yourself to be the best version of yourself. That's not as far-fetched as it may seem. After all, five years ago, chest binding was viewed as something no different than foot binding. Foot binding is, of course, the Chinese custom of binding and breaking a girl's feet in order to change the, the shape and size of their feet. Maybe we'll get to the point where Foot Locker sells feet binders. Who knows? 
But as for chest binding, it went from something macabre and grotesque, and it still is, but it used to be widely viewed that way, uh, if people knew about it at all, which in fact, I guess five years ago, most people would never even heard of it, didn't know that that was a thing at all. But now it's being promoted and sold by Target. Not just Target, but the medical industry as well. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a paper on their website claiming that um, chest binding is, quote, often critical for mental health. And yet, in the very same sentence, they admit that, quote, negative physical side effects ranging from chronic pain to rib fractures are common. Now, for more on those side effects, we go to an article from the Cleveland Clinic, which also promotes and celebrates chest binding, but then lists some hazards that come with it. And those hazards include, here's a partial list, acne, bacterial infections, fungal infections, itching, scarring, swelling, tenderness, loss of muscle mass, postural changes, rib fractures, shoulder popping, dizziness, headaches, lightheadedness, numbness. Oh, and we should mention that it often crushes the breast to such an extent that there's permanent deformation of the organ, uh, can make it difficult or impossible to breastfeed later in life. This is what Target is selling. As I saw somebody put it on Twitter, uh, to be more specific, they, they are selling conversion therapy for girls. And just think of the name, Tomboy X. Yet, tomboys are precisely what they're erasing from existence. A girl with a slightly more masculine characteristics and interests used to simply be a girl with slightly more masculine characteristics and interests. Those kinds of girls existed in the world once. And, uh, and, and we would call this kind of girl a tomboy, and very often it was a phase that she would outgrow. Sometimes it was a personality trait that, that kind of cemented and endured for life, which is fine, or it was fine. Now, girls with these kinds of tendencies are told that they're not really girls at all. There used to be variety within each sex. Now, every type outside the mean, everything that is not average, is subsumed by the LGBT cult, consumed by it, branded by it. Forget self-expression. Girls now are encouraged to literally constrict themselves, stuff, them, stuff themselves into a vice to try to change their shape, to hide and destroy parts of themselves. You know, the message to girls used to be, uh, uh, you're beautiful just the way you are. And that was the, the, the relentless messaging. And sometimes it went, it, went, it went too far overboard. But now it's, here, flatten your breasts with this elastic band until you have a severe bacterial infection and your ribs are broken. Do this so that you can look like a boy. This is what passes for self-empowerment these days. It's also what passes for LGBT pride. Let me hide and destroy myself out of pride. That's LGBT pride, which should, perhaps should uh, tell us something about LGBT pride. Now let's get to our five headlines. Just like the foundation of this great country is the Constitution, the foundation of your family should be your faith and your beliefs. So I have a serious question for you. If something should happen to you, God forbid, or your spouse, who do you trust to instill those same core beliefs and values in your children? Do you think it's the same person that the state would assign them to? Probably not. If you don't have a will in place, you have no say in the future of your children. 
Let that sink in. Think about that. That should scare you enough to take take care of the problem. And if you're single, you don't think you need a will. Well, you cannot be more wrong. A will allows you to establish advanced directive and medical power of attorney. You really want to leave the burden of deciding life support or not to your family members or close friends? Of course not. A will allows you to clearly communicate to your loved ones what your wishes are regarding your health. If you haven't made one yet, you're not alone. But we're going to make it easy for you at EpicWill.com when you use promo code Walsh. We are so excited that they're partnering with us at Daily Wire. They're protecting our staff and their families as well. Let them protect yours. EpicWill.com, promo code Walsh. This is how easy it is. You can secure your future in as little as five minutes with a complete will package starting at 119 bucks. And when you use promo code Walsh, you'll save 10%. EpicWill.com. Again, EpicWill.com. This will be the most important five minutes you spend today. Um. Okay, before we get started here, I got to show you this uh, because yet again, getting uh, shamed by my wife. We, we went out to eat um, on on Sunday, actually, it was for Mother's Day, and my wife she always accuses me. And I don't know why, but she accuses me at restaurants of trying to embarrass her. She says that that's like something I, I always do, and so I decided to. You see the picture that she posted. So I decided to wear my sunglasses inside, um, and I wear my napkin as a bib. And then eat sushi with a fork. So this was what, because she accuses me of trying to embarrass. And I'm I'm a grown man, by the way. I'm a 35-year-old man. And that's how I decided to comport myself on Mother's Day, no less. And the thing is, um, I didn't know this, but the whole time, the, uh, the, the guy that was busting our table, he was a fan. And he recognized, but he didn't say anything until the very end. And he witnessed all of this. And But I, I have to assume he's a fan of the show. He's probably not surprised. By the way, other big news here. We're about to have a, a new press secretary. I thought we already did. I thought that, uh, I guess I'm not, I'm not up, up to date on this, but I thought that Jen Psaki was shuffling away and had introduced the new one, but she's still apparently gives. So I don't know what the deal is, but eventually we're going to have a new press secretary and she's uh, black and gay. And this is a huge deal, we're told. So the Cato Institute tweeted this. Do we have the tweet from the Cato Institute talking about... Um, There we go. So, Cato Institute says, For roughly the first two centuries of American independence, no black or gay person and no woman could aspire to be the White House press secretary. Now, I love this for so many reasons. The first one is that the position of White House press secretary didn't exist until like the 1930s. So, we have not had a White House press secretary. I mean, maybe not surprisingly, there wasn't a a White House press secretary in like 1805. Um, so that's the first problem. Second problem is who the hell aspires to be the White House press secretary? That I that's like that should be a prison sentence. I think that's that here's my idea off the cuff, off the top of my head here. Now we're brainstorming. That should be a prison sentence that you give to people. Where your job is to stand up there and lie for the president every day, and everybody knows that you're lying. So every day you just set your integrity and your credibility on fire in front of the entire world. There's, there's no, I mean, there are many ways, by the way, if you're willing to do that, to set your integrity and credibility on fire in front of the whole world, um, I mean, there, are, there are lots of jobs where people do that, but you could get paid a lot more to be White House press, press secretary. Who, who aspires to that? I would, now, okay, I'll admit, I I would like to be White House press secretary for just so I could get fired on the first day. I wouldn't make it past the first day. So I would take one day in that position 
But I don't know, if my kids told me, if I was talking to my daughter, and as we've had this conversation many times, and, and it, what the, you know, it always kind of changes when you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if I were to, to go home tonight and ask my daughter that, and she said, I want to be the White House press secretary, I would put her in counseling. I would get therapy for her. That, that's, as a, as a parent, it's one of your worst nightmares is that your child comes home and says, oh, I got a job as the White House press secretary. Oh, not you, dear child, not you. Um, and the other interesting thing about this, uh, this person here, the fact that, they're, that she's black and lesbian is not interesting at all and doesn't matter. But um, the interesting thing is that uh, she is on the record saying that the 2016 election was stolen, that, and using those words exactly, that the Georgia's, Georgia governor's race was stolen, and that Fox News is racist. And this was very recently. This was a couple of years ago, leading up to uh, early on in coronavirus. And she said that Fox News is racist. Now, now she's going to be press secretary where she's supposed to pretend at least to be non-biased, non-partisan, you know, treating everybody equally in the press room. And yet here's what she thinks of Fox News. Listen. Fox News was racist before coronavirus. They are racist during the coronavirus. Fox News will be racist after the coronavirus. So there is nothing new here. I think the difference is, is they have been, they are all in on being state TV for Donald Trump. And so they will continue to give them misinformation. The danger is, so yes, you have Asian Americans right now whose lives are seriously in danger. And you have their own viewers who are now the ones who are 60, 60 and older who are watching. Watching. This is a health crisis that we're in. This is a global pandemic, as yeah. the WHO has said, and they're putting their lives in danger. And so that is where we are right now, is the, the danger that Fox News is now, what they're putting out there is going to hurt people yeah. and not help them. Oh, yeah. Well, she'll be fair and objective, obviously. It's saying ahead of time that Fox News is racist and dangerous and hurting people. But, uh, you know, I said that this is an interesting fact about her. It actually is not. This also is not interesting because this is, this is what we're used to um, in general from the White House, but especially from this administration in particular, that they're all just activists. Everybody, and this is what Democrats do. Um, everyone they put, anyone in any position, doesn't matter what the position is, they are all activists. And she is a left-wing activist. It's just activists all the way down. And that's one of the reasons why this administration has been a total unmitigated historic disaster. I mean, it has been the worst first year and a half, two years of a presidential administration in American history. Nothing even comes close. And yet another example here, this is a story that's gotten more attention lately, but still less than it deserves. It says, desperate mothers across the U.S. have been forced to buy formula they know will make their babies sick as the country grapples with a shortage that has left shelves bare and has caused prices to skyrocket to $120 a can. $120 a can. I mean, think about getting into your car to drive to the grocery store. You got to put gas in your car for $4.50 a gallon or whatever it is now. And um, and then you're, you're driving to the store and you're paying $120 a can for baby formula. This is simply not a sustainable way to live for most Americans. 
Uh, Winter Balthrop of Gals in Tennessee says she broke down inside her car after driving to six stores and calling others as far as three hours away only to receive the same answer, which is that the specific formula uh, that her baby needs and tolerates was out of stock. When it dawned on her that she would have to feed her baby girl, Blakely, um, baby girl Blakely, non-hypoallergenic formula, she knew she would uh, make make her stomach sick. The new mother bursts into tears, and then they give many other examples of this. Major retailers such as CVS, Walgreens, and Target have limited in-store and online purchases to up to three per buyer, as parents have raised concerns that many are hoarding the already hard-to-find formulas. This is something I've noticed myself. I was at Walgreens yesterday, in fact, and they had the formula um, behind the counter, behind glass, and I watched somebody come in, and they got their ration of formula. So, we, we are now in, in a, a position of baby formula rationing. And um, now, we're not in the market for baby formula, but this is something. And, you know, when I go to buy diapers, you see it as well. The shelves are almost entirely bare. And this is a, a real crisis. So much so that I'm not exactly sure what you do as a parent. Now, I know that... Um, yeah, there's some people that have commented and said, well, uh, there's, a, there's a cheap, there's a free alternative to formula, which is breastfeeding. And obviously, yes, but some mothers can't breastfeed, you know, for various different physical, medical reasons. They don't have enough supply. Uh, there could also be, you know, there are plenty of mothers that actually have to work, especially given the state of the economy right now. And so what do you do in that situation when you can't find formula? You know, we were in that position with, um, even though my wife's a stay-at-home mom, with our twins, uh, just because of supply issues and 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 uh, other other things, we had to supplement. We had no choice. We had to supplement the breastfeeding with uh, with baby formula, and especially with twins, we bought a lot of it. And I know from experience that babies have, you know, very specific needs when it comes to that. And you're going to find a certain kind of formula that, that they need if you try to give them something else. They're going to have gas. They're going to get colicky. They're going to be up all night screaming. And this is what um, people are facing. Just, just one. This is, this is one of the major crises gripping the country. Right now. And it is a crisis. And I think it should tell you something that although it's a crisis, when this is food for infants that we're running out of, um, although it is a crisis, there's not a whole lot being said about it, especially from the corporate media. I mean, they're, they're paying lip service to it because they have to. They went a while without reporting it at all. And now they're reporting it because they have no choice. But they're mostly trying to ignore it. And part of the reason for ignoring it, obviously, is that it makes Biden look really bad. It's just yet another major problem that we're facing since Biden uh, came into office. And um, they don't want to do that because he's their guy. But... I think it's also just that for a lot of people on the left, especially uh, especially if they're childless, they just don't feel any kind of, they don't really feel anything about a baby formula shortage. In fact, for a lot of them, they're more outraged about college-educated adults having to pay their loans, their student loans, than about babies not having enough food to eat. Have we heard anything from the squad about the baby formula problem? Because we've heard a whole lot about the poor, you know, the poor 30-year-old 
college graduates with graduate degrees who now have to pay their student loans back. And what a crisis that is. What about infant children that can't, can't eat because they don't have enough food? All right, let's move to this. Speaking of protecting children, protesters showed up at uh, Justice Alito's house yesterday. So they've already been to Justice Kavanaugh's house. Uh, they went to Roberts's house, even though he's on their side, and they went there. Um, and here we have some of the footage of them just marching down the street. They somehow managed to find his house. And we know they found Kavanaugh's house because his own neighbor alerted the protesters and the activists to the fact that, you know, I live next door to him. So did something similar happen here? I don't know. I think they're shouting they want justice now and uh, justice in the form of killing babies. That's the kind of justice they want. Just so you know, that, that footage you see there, that is um, illegal on the federal level and on the state level because that's in Virginia. Now, it's, it, is a, it is a federal crime to try to intimidate and harass Supreme Court justices to try to change the outcome of uh, a decision. That's a federal crime. It's also against the law in the state of Virginia to put on a protest, have a display like that in the middle of a residential neighborhood. They actually have a law against it. And yet they were allowed to do it. And some of the, the, the rationale for that, this is in spite of the fact that Virginia is you know, famously now run by Republicans. And they allowed this to happen. And that's in spite of the fact that, and uh, some of the, the justification I've heard for that is that, well, the, the law that's on the books that forbids you from having a demonstration like that in a residential neighborhood, uh, that would never hold up in court anyway. It's, and, and so that, whether it would or not, it's the law on the books right now, which means that you can arrest them or at the very least have the police show up and tell them to leave because that's the law on the books. Now, if you want to challenge the law, uh, you can go ahead and do that. But as it stands right now, that's the law. And if those laws are not enforced, we know they're not going to be enforced on the federal level. The DOJ is just sitting back and allowing this to happen because they're happy about it. It's not just that they're allowing it, they're enthusiastic about it. So if Republicans that are running the states where these things are happening and the localities where these are happening, if, if they don't step up and stop it, then it's, it only gets worse from here. I mean, we learn, we learn that, and this is a lesson that we should never have had to learn the hard way, but when you sit back and you allow the leftist militants to do what they want, that only emboldens them. You know, they're never going to reach a point where they say, okay, we've gone far enough. This is, this is all we really wanted to do. And then they turn around and go home. Hey, guys, we've made our point. Let's go home. That never happens. They keep pushing and they keep pressing uh, feeling more and more emboldened every step of the way as they're allowed to do whatever they want. And then there was one interesting clip, though, from one of the protesters at this uh, demonstration. And I'm going to play this. Now, she's explaining why she is pro-abortion. And she has a, a, the reason that she gives is deeply depressing and dark, but also, but also one of the more honest things that you're ever going to hear from a pro-abortion protester 
Listen to this. It's my body, it's my choice. My, as I said before, my mother didn't have a choice, so I'm here, but I had 57 years of misery. If she had a choice, she would have made different decisions and I might not have been here and nobody would have been the wiser. Give her her choice, but rather than she having a choice, a choice was made for her because she didn't have it and she brought children into the world that she didn't want. What do you want people to know? What do they have to know about abortion? What's the number one message? My body, my choice. That's the number one message. My body, my choice. I'm not a second class citizen. So she is saying quite explicitly that she wishes she was aborted and that her mother was forced to have her and didn't want to have her. And now she's been born and she's had 57 years of misery and nobody would have been, uh, they would have been none the wiser, as she puts it, if she was just aborted and, and everything would have been fine. Like she, it's not just, I mean, think about this for a second. It's not just that this woman is saying that she wishes she was dead. Um, although she does wish that, apparently. It's like she wishes that she never existed. Though, of course, again, with an abortion, it's too late for that because the baby already exists. But she wants to erase the last, the whole, her, her entire life. Which is extremely depressing, of course. But it only goes to show that these people are, in a very literal sense, anti-life. They really do hate human life. And that should be no surprise. Because to be you know, in favor of killing babies at all, that, that's the perspective you have to have. And to get this upset at the notion that more babies are going to be allowed to be born, and sadly, not even that many more babies, because as we've gone over, you know, this is the 80-some percent of the abortions in America are still going to happen. So if there's any increase in the birth rate at all, it makes these people very upset and outraged because they are anti-life. Although what she just said there, at least, it is... Um, the most honest and, in a way, the most coherent pro-abortion argument you're going to hear. Which is that life is a terrible thing. It's an unending parade of misery. And it's better to simply avoid the whole thing. And we're doing babies a favor by uh, killing them in the womb so they never have to endure, you know, living outside of it. That's a horrible argument. I mean, it's nihilistic and, uh, and terrible and dark. But it's honest, number one, which is more than we could say for most of what we hear from pro-aborts. And it's basically coherent. It's wrong, but it's basically coherent. Like, I understand the logic of what you're saying. Terrible, but I understand, it, it at least, it's, it's not self-contradictory, at least, for the most part. And that it really is, that's that when it comes down to it, at its basis level, what you just heard there, that is the argument for abortion. That life is an awful thing, and it's best to be avoided. There's, there's nothing good about, there's nothing inherently good about life. And certainly there is nothing intrinsic, you know, there's, there's no intrinsic worth or dignity in each individual human life. All right, let's see what else we got here. Um, let's see. So Rand Paul shared this. This is uh, Lauren Garrett with the National Academy of Medicine talking about the real reason for masking. And this, what you're about to hear, this is from 2018. So this is before COVID. 
back when these public health experts were um, speaking more honestly about things like masking. Because just so you know, masking was not invented at the time of COVID. Like medical masks existed before then. And we knew a whole lot about them and plenty of studies had been done before about the efficacy of masking, about the appropriate times for masking, when it works, when it doesn't. Just reams and reams of research on that. Which is why the excuse that you hear that, uh, well, we didn't know a lot about masking early on, and so we said certain things, and it turns out those things weren't correct, but it's only because we learned. Oh, you didn't learn anything. We did not learn a single thing about masking during COVID. Because we knew all that stuff already. Case in point, here's, again, Lauren Garrett, National Academy of Medicine. Here's what she said in 2018. Listen. There's only a couple of countries that have ever really done large-scale studies to try and figure out what might work. Japan, it may not surprise you, is one of them. And they, in one of their large studies, they basically showed that the masks, it seemed like the major efficacy of a mask is that it causes alarm in the other person. And so you stay away from each other. And that's what I think happened with SARS. When I was in the SARS epidemic, I saw everywhere, all over Asia, people started wearing these masks. And it is alarming when you walk down a street and everybody coming towards you has a mask on. You definitely do social distancing. You definitely, it's just a a gut thing. But did the mask really help them? Did the mask keep the virus out? Almost certainly not. If, they, if the virus was in their, around their face, the mask would not have made the difference. The mask almost certainly didn't help, made no difference. That's not me talking, that's Lauren Garrett, the National Academy of Medicine. That's, that's what she's saying. But even to this day, if I were to say that, I'd get kicked off of YouTube. I'm not even sure, like, are we even allowed to play that according to YouTube's rules? I guess we'll find out. But that's what she said. And according to her, Before COVID, the primary function of a mask was psychological. It was psychological conditioning and manipulation. And there were certainly many of us who made that observation from the very beginning. But this is yet another thing that you weren't allowed to say at the time. People are saying now, although in that case, she said it before. For an example of someone saying something now, all of a sudden, uh, we go to Bill Gates. So similar kind of theme here, but here he is. This is not back in 2018. This is Bill Gates uh, a few days ago. And here's what he says now. It wasn't until early February when I was in a meeting that experts at the foundation said, there's no way, you know, this, there's been too much uh, travel without diagnosis uh, for us to contain this. And then at that point, we didn't really understand the fatality rate. You know, we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly, kind of like flu is, although a bit different than that. So that was a pretty scary period uh, where the world didn't go on alert, including the United States, nearly as fast as it needed to. Hmm. We didn't understand that. We didn't understand early on that it affects mainly the elderly. There's a relatively low fatality rate. We, we, we didn't, because I understood that. I do think we should keep something in mind, even though I was wearing a hazmat suit to start the show. A couple of things. First of all, most of the deaths are older people who are already in poor health with, with compromised immune systems. Um, so 
you know, in other words, th- these are not young, healthy people who are dying of this illness. The people that's especially at risk of dying from coronavirus are the same people who are at risk from dying from the flu and many other illnesses. I understood that nearly from the beginning. So what am I, a genius? I'm not the only one. There's like a whole lot of us who were saying that. But we weren't allowed to say it, though. But now Bill Gates is saying it. This is why what I want to hear from Republicans heading into, uh, well, really at the, in the midterms and especially in 2024, it, what I want to hear them promising is that they're going to put people on trial. You know, the people who pushed the lockdowns um, on, on a faulty premise, it's, it's not enough for them to just say, well, our bad. Uh, we didn't know. We, as the experts, didn't know things that people on Twitter knew within like two days. No, that's not enough. This is not, this is not a mea culpa kind of thing. And it's not even a mea culpa because none of these people are even apologizing. I just want to move on like it didn't happen. Economic devastation. Kids whose lives were destroyed for years. Sometimes, I mean, kids who killed themselves. Everything else. I mean, we, we know the whole, the whole litany. And they want to simply move on from it like it didn't happen. We, we cannot allow that. And what I want to hear from Republicans is that we're going to find the people responsible for pushing this and we're going to put them on trial and hold them responsible. All right, let's, one other quick clip here. Let's uh, check this. This is at the, the scene at uh, the European Parliament. Let's put this up on the screen. I don't know what's going on here exactly, but we've got, all right. It, this is interpretive dancing happening in the aisles of the European Parliament. Oh my gosh. I don't know exactly what the explanation is here. I don't think we need the explanation. Like there, there can't be an explanation that makes this any less embarrassing. This is, by the way, interpretive dancing, that's, that to dancing is like the, uh, it's like, that's like slam poetry. Interpretive dancing is to dancing what slam poetry is to poetry, which is that it's not really dancing at all. I mean, that's, if I could do it, that's the rule for dancing, is that if I can do it, it is, you are not dancing. And I could do, I wouldn't do that unless I really needed to express myself. There have been a few times I've been arguing with my wife and I couldn't get my words out. And so I, I broke out into an interpretive dance to try to express how I was feeling deeply inside. But for the most part, I won't do that. Uh, but if I can, then it's not dancing. If you're doing poetry that I could write, it's not poetry. But who's who's the, the girl that showed up at the inauguration? Amanda Gorman, right? Like that kind of poetry? I could do that. That's not poetry. That's what they're doing over at the European Parliament. Let's go now to the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Um, Tom Youngjohn says, whoever picked Matt to be part of the DW team deserves a raise. Well, nobody really picked me. I just wandered in one day. Just wandered. I was in my, you know, I was a homeless guy in my car and I was hanging out in the parking lot, ranting to nobody, talking to myself. And then Ben Shapiro walked it down one day and said, well, if you're going to be down here, we'll just give you a uh, we'll give you a, a cell phone. You just ranted to the camera. And that's, 
that's the origin story. That's where it all began. Um, but this apparently in the comment section led to a little bit of a disagreement. And then Lisa J disagrees, does not think the person who, who hired me should get a raise. In fact, maybe they should be fired. She says, couldn't disagree more. He's become one of the main reasons I no longer subscribe and wouldn't tell anyone I watch DW. I'm a conservative and think the other three main hosts are light years beyond Walsh and infinitely more worthwhile. Matt Walsh had some strong points and much potential, but has chosen to squander much of it in ugly, mean-spirited, childish humor that's sometimes even unethical and often hypocritical. He has become desperate with his sweet baby stuff and crazy ego and needs to relentlessly promote some dumb image he's created and become fixated on to the extent that it often makes him say and push really unpleasant and ugly stuff to serve that image. That's the only conclusion I can draw as to why someone who is thoughtful and interesting and often funny is now often peppered with behavior that I would be so ashamed of. He and the fraudster Owens are the weak links in DW, in my opinion. Well, me and Candace are the weak links. I mean, we were the ones who spent like three days arguing over a bottle of water, so you might have a point. Uh, but I, I'm not going to respond to each point, each part of this, especially because there are no examples provided of, of what I, when I've done any of these things um, that I stand accused of. But I will say, as far as the mean-spirited, childish, unethical, ugly accusation, well, childish, I'll give you that too, because I did just show you the, the picture of me in the sunglasses with the bib, you know, eating sushi with a fork. So I can't deny that either. But the others I won't agree with. Uh, I may be mean sometimes, but here's the distinction. I don't think this is splitting hairs. It, it Mean, but not mean-spirited. And I, I think there is a difference, because mean-spirited is when you you just want to hurt people. That's your only motivation. A mean-spirited person, the only thing he wants to do is simply hurt people. And you take pleasure in hurting people. That's not what I'm about. Now, I can act and speak in a way that's aggressive and even mean sometimes, but that's because I'm responding to, right, and trying to fight back against things that are evil. Uh, and you don't, I don't think you fight evil because you want to hurt people. Quite, quite the opposite. And the problem on the right often, especially in the commentator class, I don't think it's that, it's that uh, we're too mean, um, despite how it's, how it's painted, that, oh, that's a bunch of right-wing radicals that are all so mean. I think the problem often is, for, for many conservatives, uh, people who claim to be conservative anyway, is actually that they don't really care. They don't feel any anger towards the evil happening in our culture. I do. You know, it pisses me off, and I respond in kind. And it can be a little mean sometimes, but not mean-spirited. That's the distinction. Um, okay. Davey says, Matt, your book, Church of Cowards, got a shout-out by my pastor yesterday in our Baptist church in Silicon Valley in uh, California. It's crazy to think about how much more applicable the book is today. Uh, yeah, I wish that, that's one that I wish I could say is, is, is now irrelevant and don't bother buying it. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, let's see. Emery says, not trying to be rude, but if you looked at a breakdown of adoptive families, I'd be curious to know the races of adoptive parents. It's actually a really fascinating question and, uh, and point, because yesterday we heard from the race-hustling feminists about how um, black kids aren't adopted as often as white kids, and, uh, and that means, according to them, that we should just kill the black kids. That's their, well, we should have abortion because they're not adopted anyway. That's, that's their argument. But um, rather than blame racism, it is interesting to ask how many black adults are adopting kids themselves. And as far as that goes, 
There's a study by the Institute of Family Studies from 2017 that gives some idea. Uh, it, says, it says of the races of adoptive mothers of kindergartners. So it's maybe you know, a small select sample here, but this is what they say. 77% are white, 6% black, 9% Hispanic. Now, of course, white people can and often do adopt non-white children. But the fact is that white people are carrying most of the load here, and they're way overrepresented in comparison to their statistical you know, representation in the, in the broader culture. They're overrepresented as adoptive parents, whereas other races are underrepresented. And when white families do adopt non-white children, the race hustlers will often call that racist too. So it's a definite damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If you're a white family looking to adopt a child, damned if you do, damned if you don't right? And one solution to that situation might be for greater adoption participation of other groups. But that's an aspect of this conversation that's like never brought up. It's the first time I've seen anyone bring it up. It's a good point. And that's in the YouTube comment section. And finally, Carrie says, Matt, I was at a friend's house for dinner last night and there are two kids who were on their phones at the table the whole dinner. Why do parents allow this? Is it just me or is that the rudest thing ever? Uh, it's not just you. That's incredibly rude. I can't imagine. I, I don't understand why parents allow that. You know, I know that you can't, as a parent, you can't control every last thing that your kid does because they are their own person. They have their own mind and they're going to do things you don't want them to do. And so a lot of times you're playing cleanup and you're, you know, punishing and things like that. But this is one thing that you can absolutely control proactively and lots of parents don't even attempt to. So you see it at restaurants. I've seen it, you know, I've seen it also at people's houses. Kids are sitting there on their phones at dinner. I mean, it blows my mind. Take the, just stand up, take the phones out of their hands. And you know, the best thing you can do is take the phones out of their hands and throw them in the toilet and destroy them. I was thinking about this today. I was driving to work and I was running uh, later than usual. And so, you know, I usually see this because usually I'm coming in too early, but I saw, I, I drove by, I don't know, five or six bus stops and the kids were out at the bus stops waiting for the bus. And at every single bus stop, of course, the kids are just sitting there, like standing like zombies, silently looking down at their phones. And I can remember when I was a kid, the bus stop was, it, it was its own thing, its own adventure, you know, its own like ecosystem was the bus stop and the bus and now it's nothing. Kids don't even notice that they're there. They're just looking down at their phones. It's a damn shame. As you know, I've been working extremely hard to bring you great content like my number one best-selling LGBT children's book, Johnny the Walrus. But do you know um, who else has been working on something you won't want to miss? That's Ben Shapiro. And that's season two of his show, Debunked. In it, Ben exposes leftists for the frauds they are and gives you the tools you need to dismantle any of their unsubstantiated, ridiculous arguments the newest episode released this week and examines the foolishness and ugliness of Marxism. Debunked is streaming exclusively at The Daily Wire, so if you're not already a Daily Wire member, head to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code DEBUNKED for 20% off your new membership. Ben created this show to give you the confidence to counter any leftist argument, and we all know that confidence is needed now more than ever. So use uh, code DEBUNKED for 20% off your new Daily Wire membership today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. You know, one of the trends on TikTok, for some reason, is for people to post videos documenting and explaining their morning routines. And the thing that you quickly notice if you watch a few of these videos is that people on TikTok, perhaps unsurprisingly, have a lot of free time on their hands. 
So for their morning routines, they wake up at a leisurely hour. They do 45 minutes of yoga, an hour of meditation. They go into their immaculate remodeled kitchen with top-of-the-line appliances that they could somehow afford despite not having a job. They make some kind of green, healthy smoothie, go for a jog, do some crunches. Then they go consult their personal guru who lives on a goat farm at the top of a mountain. Then they have lunch. And it's all quite difficult to relate to, especially as a parent. I mean, my feelings about yoga are well known. But even if I was inclined to give yoga a shot... I don't think my kids would stay out of my hair long enough for me to get a good yoga session in or whatever you call it. Though they probably would enjoy coming with me to the mountaintop goat farm, come to think of it. In any case, we know that um, this is the kind of thing. It's one, it's one of the, the two main genres of content on social media, especially on sites like TikTok and Instagram. This is the my life is perfect, look how happy and put together I am genre. The second genre is the exact opposite of that. It is, in fact, meant to be a correction to the first type, though it ends up being just as bad, if not considerably worse. And that is the, my life is terrible, look how miserable I am, please feel sorry for me genre. So one TikToker, a lawyer in Toronto, has made her own morning routine video, which fits into this latter category. Uh, She's been applauded for this video, which has been viewed many millions of times. BuzzFeed says that it's refreshing and makes them feel seen. Upworthy agrees that it's refreshing and honest. Yahoo celebrates it for being authentic and real. In the video, the 27-year-old woman shows us what her routine is like as a lawyer who is depressed as F. Watch. This is my very realistic, non-aesthetic morning routine as a lawyer who is depressed as f***. Took me half an hour to get out of bed, so I was very late this morning. I admit I washed my face to wake up, but didn't brush my teeth. Too lazy for a base routine, so I just mix some foundation with moisturizer. My latte also exploded in the microwave, very on brand. I have to contour my face to hide the fact that it's so bloated from drinking last night. I'm really not doing well, please don't judge me. I can't bring myself to give any more than I do, so putting my hair up millennial style, okay? None of that clean girl, slicked back bun Honestly, though, I don't care how depressed I am. I will not wear my hair in a ponytail like that. I put on some earrings, though. Good for me. I'm wearing Crocs to work because I'm sad. Please don't ask me why there's Tupperware on the floor. Okay, have a nice day. Hmm. Well, that was important information, clearly. And too too depressed and sad to put the effort in to brush your teeth, but you can put the effort in to make a video and edit it and post it. Now, the comments are all raving about this. They call the video beautiful and raw and vulnerable and important and amazing. The lady simply just announced that she didn't brush her teeth in the morning, and these people want to award her the Medal of Freedom for it. And why? Well, because it validates their own laziness and recasts their own self-centered disregard as somehow brave and empowered. So let's consider a few points related to all this. First, um, brush your teeth. That's disgusting. Second, anytime you put personal information on the internet and demand not to be judged for it, you're lying because you do want to be judged. You wouldn't publish it for the world to see if you didn't want the world to make a judgment about it. If you really didn't want to be judged at all for the fact that you're practicing poor hygiene, you just wouldn't tell anybody and nobody would know unless they end up stuck in an elevator next to you. You take the time to record and publish the video because you want to hear the public's opinion. It's just that you expect that the public will have a positive, affirming opinion. That's what you're really asking for. It's not don't judge me. It's rather judge me in a nice and encouraging way. But that demand is unfair and also impossible. I mean, once you tell me something about yourself that I didn't ask for or want to know, 
You've given me information that my mind will process however it wants to process it. That's not my fault. You can't give me unsolicited information and also assign me an opinion that I'm supposed to have about that information. That's not how it works. Second, you know, we've all had times when we feel especially down and uh, completing normal basic tasks feels like a, a huge burden. But those are precisely the times when it's most important that you complete the tasks and you do the chores and you follow the routine. If you wake up feeling extra depressed, you should be even putting even more effort into your mundane task. You should try to look even sharper and, and more put together than usual. The point is not to suppress your feelings exactly, but rather to refuse to become a slave to them. Fake it till you make it. It's one of the most fundamental truths of human nature. It may not be a catch-all cure for depression. I'm not saying that it is. But there are certainly worse treatment plans on the market, tell you that much. Now, if you allow your feelings to entirely dictate your behavior and you use them to justify slacking off, not taking care of yourself, not taking care of your responsibilities, soon you'll be caught in this self-defeating spiral that becomes harder and harder to escape from. Not brushing your teeth in the morning is the first step towards that spiral, but it gets you closer to the spiral than you might think. After all, brushing your teeth is a very low-effort task that anyone can complete. I don't care how depressed you are. You let your feelings justify skipping that step, and soon they'll be justifying much more than that. Third point, finally. Um, you know, I get as annoyed as anyone by the my life is perfect genre of social media posts. But I'll take that over the my life is a mess genre any day. The former may be cherry-picked and largely fake, but at least it's aspirational. You know, I'm never going to be somebody who drinks healthy green smoothies every morning or any morning, but I'd rather hear about that than have you tell me about your diet that's even more disgusting and lazier than my diet. There's a very dangerous inclination in all humans to take comfort in the fact that other people have personal habits and engage in behaviors that are worse than our own. That's why the my life is miserable genre is pretty popular. People are looking for ways to rationalize their worst tendencies. They want to be able to point at somebody and say, man, I felt kind of bad about myself, but it turns out that this person behaves the same way and even worse, actually, so I guess I'm not so bad off. One of the most popular mental health slogans these days is, um, that I'm sure you've heard before, is uh, it's okay to be not okay. But I can't think of a worse thing to say to someone who isn't okay. It's not okay to be not okay. That's why we call it not okay. You might as well say it's happy to be sad or it's comfortable to be in pain. You should try to be okay rather than not okay. You shouldn't simply resign yourself to being not okay. You should aim up. This is one of the reasons why I despise all the efforts to so-called normalize depression. The effect is that, is that now it's become an identity. It's become a lifestyle rather than something that you strive to overcome and conquer. Because nobody's aiming up anymore. They keep their vision fixed parallel to the floor and they stay on whatever level they're currently on. Or else they intentionally aim down. No, don't do that. Aim up. Put in the effort. Try to be better. Help yourself. Brush your teeth. That's my message to the depressed lawyer on TikTok. Also, as the segment unfortunately calls for, I also have to say, you're canceled. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, 
Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. Morning Wire.